Hey guys, welcome back to Brian Sells Words. It's been a while. We've had to make some adjustments for pandemic considerations and whatnot. And that be it, that in mind, you may hear my little people in the background. It's around lunchtime in this household. So we're trying to get lunch out and things like that. Today, I do have a guest and we're going to talk about pivoting and starting a new business or a new hustle. And so on the line, I have Chris. Hey, Brian. Hey, Chris. We're going to talk about, I can give you a little bit of my background with pivoting from a career into something and, and pivoting into a new, starting my own business, more or less. And Chris is going to give you a little bit of his journey and talk about what he does and the digital business we're trying to get off the ground. So does that sound okay for you, Chris? Sounds like a good plan. All right, cool. When I first started, my entire background is in childcare. That's where I started at. I started with a job where I was supervising an after-school program for kids that were quarter signed. It was more or less a, a daycare center for teenagers that had difficulties adjusting and using their free time in a productive manner. I, I learned to cut my teeth in that, and it's a, it's a weird entry point because you don't want to you don't want that to be your first job working with uh, kids or probably maybe the oldest one was maybe three years younger than me. <laughs> so I was juggling that. I didn't have a, a ton of management or direction, but I managed to get by and I built good relationships with probation officers and court officials and whatnot. Took an opportunity with one of the largest childcare companies in the country. It's a residential program. And I was what they call an assistant uh, family teacher. I was basically an assistant for the living couple. I give them day, I'll come in and help supervise the kids, monitor their kids. And then when they took days off, I would be the person that was the primary per point person. And it wasn't the dedication that they showed where they actually moved into the house and things like that. But essentially it was doing the job of two people by myself. And you learn a lot of negotiation skills when you're dealing with unruly teenagers. Chris, I know that you've, if you had to do some of that along the line too, working with, yep, you know, yep. I think that's yeah. in your background. I worked for the YMCA for about eight years and you definitely hit some of that. Yep. <laughs> so, and it's a different kind of negotiation. And a lot of times when you have those human services jobs, people are lifers in those human services jobs. When they get in, that's what they do for the rest of their life. And one of the things was I enjoyed working with the kids. I enjoyed working with, with the families I worked with, but I started to feel, I don't know, siloed off, trapped, if that's the word for it, isolated. And the career path at that point in time was you did that and that was all you did. If you were in that position and I heard it uh, once I was able to break through that little ceiling that they had on us for the direct frontline workers, I heard from administration that if you're in a position for five years there, you're, they're considered you a lifer and you're never going to move up. And that's one of those weird artificial barriers that you find working that nine to five. And I know, Chris, you've probably run into those weird artificially placed barriers. That was one of that was like the key where I'm like, I need to get out of this. Have you hit one of those kind of roadblocks too? Yeah, the similar one. Basically, you find that somebody makes an observation and then somebody else decides that observation is now a rule. <laughs> I don't know how yeah. that comes to be, but it's exactly like you said. Somebody says, we've been at it for five years and you have no signs of moving, so we're not going to make any effort to promote you or train you or get you into an, another position. You're here. That's what you do now. <laughs> and the other side was because 
the cup, the last couple I was with, I had three couples. One moved on to greener pastures. They went out to the DC program to really get them started because they were really strong in terms of structuring. And so that's what they did. The next couple came in and it was a mismatch between me and them in terms of personalities and temperament. And the last couple I was there, they were fantastic. Rod and Sue, if you guys are listening to this, you guys were a, a lifesaver for me because they, they were an experienced couple. They had been around the block. Parents were actually it had done the same job. And so they really knew how to structure the home and balance that work-life balance for me. And it was one of those things where I, I finally found the people that I was like, okay, this is great. But mm -hmm. I had that thing, like I needed to move up. Yep. And yeah. it was one of those things, I finished my degree while I was in that position and I started trying to apply to move up. And that's where I fell into the artificial, weird, artificially placed barrier. And so I ended up having to take a job that was not external to the agency so I can get experience. And the weird part was it was a job that had a lot more, you needed more qualifications to have it, but it was a lot less pay. And so I had to take a pay cut to get experience. And it did put a kind of a, a strain on everybody in the house. And so long story short, that was my pathway. I had to take a pay, I had to take a, a move that was, considered a move up, but I had to take a pay cut. Uh, but that did open the door for me to move into a more management position that I wanted. And the thing that's weird about it is you get that management position and you fight and you fight and then you get into it and now you're in charge of other people. But the thing they don't teach you is how to manage other people. If you've just <laughs> discovered the Peter principle, people rise to the level of their incompetence, right? They, 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 they don't teach you how to do this thing. They just say, you were good at the last thing. You must be good at the next thing. Exactly. And so I did that for about five years and I was progressing through with a lot of hiccups and road bumps and not a lot of training until mm -hmm. I kind of asked for it, which is a red flag for you guys. If you're listening, if you're in a position and they're expecting a lot out of you, but they don't provide you any kind of uh, substantive training, you might need to reevaluate your trajectory with the career that you're in or with, with the company or whatever you're with. To kind of caveat that, the, if the company is offering training and you are not taking it, you're the problem. <laughs> if if you're asking for training and they're not providing it, they're the problem. You got to know that the training is the key there. Well, and in my position, it was weird because I'm sitting there and it was me and there was another supervisor that kind of came along at the same time. And we're literally begging them like, okay, you guys are writing us, you guys are writing us up and holding us accountable for things that we have never been formally trained on. Mm -hmm. um, we're both six months into the job and you guys have written us up for not doing, cause we, we used to call it co consulting with staff. Mm -hmm. You're writing us up because you're observing us consulting with staff, but we're not hitting these bullet points that you want us to hit. Nobody ever trained us on it. I did some digging and found, Oh, there is a supervisor training program here. Mm -hmm. They just, the bosses never signed us up for it. Yeah. And they were never trained to train you to do that. They were never trained to offer that. And, you know, it right. goes all the way up. If they don't write you up for it, it has to be their fault, and it can't be their fault. <laughs> and that's the crazy part because we both went through this training. We both got the way that we're we're supposed to do the supervisions, the way we're supposed to structure our stuff, and we came back and started doing it the way it's supposed to be structured. But then we started getting written up for not doing it the way that the supervisors wanted. And yeah. it's like what you want flies in the face of how uh, the how they're training all the leadership to do it here. So yeah. we had that. Anyway, the pivot for me came, 
I had finally, I had moved up to, moved, moved up to another position, which was, had a lot more responsibility. We were working with the community and I was supervising family support workers in the field. And the entire time I already, I, I came from a radio background, teaching myself uh, coding and I'm teaching myself web design and I'm learning how to try to build apps and work a camera and all this other stuff. And I was building all these skills for something I didn't know what. I just knew that's what I needed to do. And I hit that block where I'm like, man, I need to, I need a career change. And it was really hitting that burnout and realizing that I was burning out on the human services thing. And Chris, you can probably attest to this. When you're working directly with people, a lot of times you couldn't fall into that rabbit hole where you're giving so much of yourself and you're not getting a ton back. And in the human services field, it's a pit. Yeah. The only way to justify it for yourself is to make it part of who you are to literally define yourself by that role. Because if it's not part of who you are, then why are you doing it? Exactly. And I think that's where the burnout comes, but I also believe that's where a lot of people end up getting trapped into these jobs. And they end up they end up becoming lifers in these jobs. And we talk, a lot of times we talk bad about social workers or caseworkers and being neglectful. And there are plenty of neglectful social workers or caseworkers out there. I understand that. But I think the thing we don't look at is most caseworkers, especially if you're handling state kids, most caseworkers have multiple times with their normal caseload with the what's considered uh, best practice. Mm-hmm. And they, I, I remember I had a coworker, she, in the, in this state, you have to go, you, at the rules where you had to go see your kids once a month. She had out of state kids placed all over the country. Oh. And the, the track she was in is it was, if you have one sibling, if you have one kid on your case and you're responsible for all their siblings too. So you had to go see their siblings. Oh. It was a sibling strip that had been split all across the country. So she spent most of her month on, on the airplane going to see all the, trying to find all these kids and see them and have a face-to-face conversation with them. That's In addition to- I'm like what she probably signed up for, geez. <laughs> and it, here's the crazy part. I think it was like eight kids, it was eight kids, but they consider that one case. Wow. She had multiple cases. <laughs> and so in the days, the day she was here, she had to actually, you, you spend nights and weekends mm-hmm. trying to catch up. And it was one of those positions where you can be an 18 hour day and you never catch up. Mm-hmm. And that's where people get burnt out. And I think that's where you end up becoming that lifer because you feel like there's nothing else you can do. Mm-hmm. You don't have time to search for something else. You can't think about anything else. All you want to do when you get home is be tired and you get stuck. Yeah. And that's what happens. And I think it was one of those things where I sat down and took stock of what I knew how to do and said, okay, so how can I tailor this resume to, to, to pivot? Mm-hmm. And you start firing out the emails, and you start firing out the resumes, and you say, "My background is in this, but I have these competencies. These are things I taught myself. Plus, I know how to sell. I know how to, I know how to 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 persuade people. I have to walk into court and persuade a judge and a county mm-hmm. attorney mm-hmm. that my plan is the bulletproof thing that's going to get this family closed out safely, get this case closed out safely, and." You have to be able to negotiate and deal with hostile parents and things like that. And that's a sales job. Yep. Everything is sales if you break it down. And, and actually, you bring up an interesting point by, by what you're talking about right now. And that is, we say this word pivot a lot, especially in like business circles, tech circles, any of that. We say pivot when we mean we're changing to a new thing. 
but a proper pivot let's talk basketball for a second you have to plan to foot <laughs> otherwise you're traveling mm-hmm. so right it sounds like what you're going through right now what you're talking about right now is how you planted your foot how you figured out where your base is so that you can turn around mm-hmm. that and that's what a lot of people miss when they go to pick something new and I think that's where I was like, I planted my foot and started learning how to do copywriting. And that's where those are the first jobs I started putting in for was a couple of local marketing firms that were looking for copywriters and people to write ads for them. And I studied it and things like that. But since my background wasn't in the marketing that they were used to, I realized that my the application was getting binned. Mm-hmm. And so I had to... I made the decision. I'm like, okay, at this point in my career, I had finally got to the part where it was, I was director of my own program and it was everything that I said I wanted in my career. And then I get in there and I'm like, this is not it. (laughs) Um, And so it ended up without going into all the details, ended up taking a flyer and taking kind of an internship slash ownership position as a marketing consultant for a local retail store. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started. And it was a complete, it felt it was a complete leaving of my career, but at least I landed somewhere. And that's how I opened the door because I had to, to work there. I had to be a private contractor because I was a consultant Mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay, this is where I start. So Mm -hmm. started out as a prop went and paid some money to get an LLC set up. And that's where my business kind of came from. Mm -hmm. But it's all of that stuff that led up to it. Chris, let's hear your story. And let's talk about what you, where you're going and what we're trying to do. Absolutely. I started working with the YMCA when I was born, (laughs) to really put it clear. (laughs) But I, I got hired at 13 years old with a work permit to work as a lifeguard and then as a summer camp counselor and then as a basketball coach. And I just kept doing different things for the YMCA. And I, I ended up working there officially after that work permit point for eight whole years, which is a long time. I'm only 28 years old. So that's like a solid chunk of my life that I put to the YMCA. And it is a social services job. We, people don't think of the YMCA this this way, but it is a not-for-profit. It is not a gym. It does a whole bunch of community outreach. And that's what I really got involved in. And and I really did start to define myself by that one role, by what I, I, I work for the YMCA. It didn't really matter what I was doing. I work for the YMCA and I do good work for the community because the YMCA does good work for the community. And that's who I am. Fast forward to six years into that, I had finished my college degree and I had started a full-time position with the YMCA at salaried. And salaried means different things to different people. It may mean that you get paid um, weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, and they don't care how many hours you work. You can work, you know, 30 hours as long as the job is done. My job was to keep the pool open at the time. I was an aquatics director. And that meant that I had to be at the building anytime the pool was open in order for the pool to be legally open according to the state. And that meant that I ended up with 96 hour plus work weeks a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's no work life balance at all. There's no life. There's no life to be had. So I wasn't dating anybody. I wasn't 
getting out there. And as soon as I tried any of that, it felt like everything started to fall apart. So I just dropped it. And it made perfect sense to me at the time because I work for the YMCA. That's who I am. 96 hours a week, it's fine. I am a YMCA worker. This is what I do. Um, a little bit of, in hindsight, positivity fell from the sky in that one night the water got turned on. I'm not going to assign fault or say any names or anything. The water got turned on and it did not get turned off to refill the pool. And it caused the building uh -huh. to be flooded with 22,000 gallons of water. And <laughs> me being the aquatics director, that being the pool, it fell on me. So despite me trying to clean up this mess and the fact that the YMCA got about uh, $400,000 worth of upgrades and repairs for a $10,000 deductible, None of that matters. And the YMCA looks great, by the way, at this point. And, and uh, the people that work there, wonderful people. Nothing against them. But I was out of a job and I had to find something new when my entire life, for as long as I had worked, had revolved around the YMCA. Oh. So I went into sales. <laughs> Why not? Right? <laughs> door to door sales, selling internet. <laughs> and if you live in the Omaha area, I have probably knocked on your door or the previous owner's door when they were there <laughs> at some point. And the average tenure in that is about a month. And I made it two years there before I found some, I went looking for something else. The whole structure was based on growing, uh, growing your team and then starting your own sales agency. And it really wasn't what I wanted. I, I didn't want to work in that business, basically, long term. I was good at it, right. um, but I just didn't want to stick. I, I saw myself, I was like, why have I put up with this for two years if I'm not planning on sticking with it for the rest of time? Right. So I switched to, I, I did another little pivot and I went from sales. And to be clear, going from the YMCA to sales, like that jump, I would not call that a pivot. <laughs> My foot left the ground full stop. I was, I was off the ground. I was traveling, um, but it turns out I was good at it. And my degrees in psychology with an emphasis in human resource development. So none of this jives whatsoever. And I went into insurance sales after that. And the company I was working with, it really felt like a boiler room kind of arrangement. It was very Wolf of Wall Street. And as much as you can learn from that environment, it's not super great long-term. It's, it's very stressful yeah. at minimum, and you, you don't always feel like you're doing the best work for people. So I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to stretch my ethics in order to make a living to just survive. So I knew I needed to find something else. And I've still been working in insurance this whole time, but I work for smaller agencies and not as an independent agent anymore. And the role that I've really taken a liking to is similar to yours. It's, it's the marketing role. It's the, how do I get people to notice me online, which has led to my most recent pivot, <laughs> which is a digital artist and getting that promotion going, which is, well, a whole new thing. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the, the marketing family. It's one of those things where I know Dan Kennedy talks about it a lot where he says, you're not, you're not your job. You're not your business. You're not your position. You are in the, you are in the business of marketing your services. You're not an insurance salesman. You're not a car salesman. You are in the business of marketing, uh, car retail, automobile retail or insurance. So this is, it, it sounds like it's a natural a path for you. And that I will tell you, this is just me throwing it out there. All your experience is going to really help 
when it comes to building out this digital, this online business for your digital art? And to be clear, I'm still working in insurance and I plan on at some level doing that indefinitely. The reason being what I've probably the number one lesson I've learned from all these little changes and pivots and big changes in some cases is exactly what you were saying. You don't have to define yourself by the career you're in. You can define yourself by a set of skills and what you like to do and then make those profitable. <laughs> and that's a much better way to live life. Exactly. Exactly. So we're starting the, let's talk digital art. How did you get into that? How did that be, how was that a bell that went off where you're like, okay, I think I can actually do this as a, I'll just say as a side hustle or as a part-time thing that I do in my downtime. Yeah. So my grandmother used to, uh, drew right up until the day she died about a month ago. She I'm sorry. To hear it, 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 it's okay. Everything's going okay on that side of things. And she'll be remembered well because of what she did. She raised a great family and she did amazing art. And that art is in so many homes and so many places you may spot it and not recognize it. If you look at old JC Penney's oh, ads, she drew those. <laughs> that was her art. Oh. And she would do the storefront windows for JC Penney's and later she would design cards for, for Hallmark. And so big career in art really. And she never, had anything super fancy but the art made her happy and it made me happy I started drawing at two years old <laughs> and my grandma would hand me a picture and she would hand me a, a pencil and some paper she started me out on tracing paper and then we got off the tracing paper and I was just trying to freehand things and by the time I was five I was drawing animal portraits and dog portraits and things and by the time I hit college age I had taken some summer art classes growing up and by the time I was uh, college age, I was able to do some really <sighs> detailed work, but I hadn't picked up the digital side of things until technically I picked it up 18 years ago. But when I say technically, I got okay. a junky little digital tablet and I basically never touched it until March of last year, <laughs> so, or March of this year, I guess it was, <laughs> um, when I decided as the pandemic hit, I was going to drop $500 on a screen display tablet, or a screen display, a display, a pen display. Words are hard. And the pen display is okay. basically a monitor on which you can draw. And I just, I, I loved it. It let me produce art with no waste, no risk, no cost of materials. Once I had it and I could paint in all the colors and black and white if I wanted, and I never had to worry about sharpening a pencil, it, it, it's... It's just a game changer if you like digital art. And I, it turns out I really do. This thing that's just been hiding in the back of my psyche all my life, it just, I was like, that's something I would not mind doing all of the time. So that's how we got here. Awesome. So I know, and I have a, I do have a, a number of people that are into the tech space. And do you know off the top of your head, uh, or do you have any recommendations for somebody that wants to, any any equipment recommendations for somebody that wants to get into digital art? Like, what kind of tablet are you using, and would you recommend sure. that? So with digital art, there's there's essentially two different breeds of tablet on which you can draw. There is a tablet that sits on the desk. You can put a pen to it, and it moves your cursor around on your monitor while you're looking up at it. Some people really like that because your hand's not in the way you can see what you're doing very easily. Some people prefer that. 
if you are just starting out, go spend, I think it's like $35 at Best Buy. You can get yourself a Wacom Bamboo tablet. It's not expensive. It gives you the chance to test it out and see if you can tolerate that kind of thing. Uh, if you like that, then drop mm -hmm. yourself $120, get yourself an Intuos Pro on Amazon. And that's another one of that same kind of thing. You draw on the desk and it pops and it moves your cursor on your screen. Those are both amazing starter and then continuing tablets. If you are going for the display where you draw directly on the screen, which is what I prefer, there's no cheap starting place for that. <laughs> it's going to be somewhere in the realm of 250 to $500 minimum. I have, I've, I found out from somebody that speaks Mandarin that it said Huion, but it, it's H-U-I-O-N, Huion is the way we Americans yep. say it. That's what I have. It, I really like that pen display and it is inexpensive comparative to the top of the line models and the top of the line models the only big difference wacom does their cintiq brand which has pen tilt sensitivity so you can detect when your pen is tilting one way or the other which sometimes is helpful if you want to get like an edge of the pe the pencil effect where you turn your pencil on your side i haven't had mm -hmm. a problem not having that if you really want that's about to become that patent is about to expire on that technology so it's probably about to appear in all the others too so wait six months to a year if that's really important to you and you'll save yourself thousands <laughs> all right. see now we're getting tech now we're getting good tech stuff too and i'm storing that in my in the back of my mind because my little girl does a lot of sketching and drawing and stuff as a side um, option for kids i have four kids now and i have a microsoft surface that's a little older it's a surface 3 pro and it has a pen that works really well for drawing what i'll do is i'll set that up on a table or something and it has saved us so much paper just for if i set that up and let them draw on it when they want to <laughs> hmm. i might have to think about that one because we have a surface that should be probably getting close to getting decommissioned here at some point in in the next two or three years and so we'll keep yeah, that I just in mind gutted everything off um, of mine and it works fine for digital art now and then option door number five i guess we'll call it um ipad pro if you get the program procreate is 10 bucks one time and it is one of the best drawing programs out there right now and ipad pro if you've already got an ipad pro get that program it's worth picking up even if you don't do a whole lot of digital art because you'll just enjoy do doodling in it so it's 10 bucks <laughs> All right. That way that works too. So there's plenty of options out there to get started drawing. Now, there's another component to this because not only are you not only are you drawing in your free time, but you're also setting up kind of a business for it to sell commissions and whatnot. Let's talk about your pit your move into sure, that space. Absolutely. So doing something for fun is I find the challenge of making something profitable fun. I may not relate to everybody in that sense, but doing art mm -hmm. in my free time would not be as easily justifiable for me if it didn't have a potential upside like that. I started streaming my drawing on twitch.tv, which is a, a developing subsection of that website. Because if twitch.tv, it's used for streaming video games primarily. But the digital right. art in general has really got a good little subculture going on there and the reason that i do that is so that people can watch me drawing and decide if they want to have me draw them something or if they want to 
have a copy of something that I have drawn, or if they want to request something while I am drawing, just to have pop up on Instagram later, or have it for their phone background or something simple that I don't, I couldn't justify charging a commission for. They're watching my stream mm-hmm. gives me a few pennies every time that an ad rolls. Like it's worth doing just for that well, reason. Yeah. And that's pretty, and it solves another problem because a lot of times a creator will have to build out their own platform, but Twitch gives you a ready-made platform. So you can step, skip a couple of those steps. Cause a lot of times the process is you would have to build your website drive traffic to that website, build a huge, build not a huge, but an online following where you have a couple hundred fans that are really eager and interested in what you do and then try to get them from to move from one platform to view on, mm-hmm. you on another platform. And that is a marketing challenge. For my creators out there, one of the hardest things is to get people who consume their media via Facebook or Twitter to get them to start consuming it via podcast. That's a very difficult hurdle. So if you're already on Twitch and you have people following your stream, that means they're interested in your content, interested in what you do. It's a lower bar to get them to consume it because they're already seeing your stuff on the platform, which they prefer. It's it's a place where they already were. I've gone to my customers rather than trying to bring my customers to me. Exactly. And that's one of the, that from a marketing standpoint, that's one of, that's the secret is when your customers are looking for you, it makes your life a lot easier because they have already self-selected. And even if they're not the ideal, they will form themselves into being your ideal customer to work with you because they want to work with you and nobody else. And it also makes pricing negotiations negotiations a lot simpler when people are seeking you out as opposed to you chasing them down. Okay. Off the Twitch thing, because I know this is still compared to your career and all this other stuff, it's still a relatively new chapter. What's the next step? Are you looking at building out a website? Are you looking at building more of your Twitch following? Are you looking at taking it and du- trying to duplicate it on another platform? What's the, well, what are the next so steps? So the short you? answer to that question is yes. Um, <laughs> but basically from Twitch, you've already got a recording of your video. So my next step is to take that, edit it down and make YouTube videos out of it. That's another platform where people can find it. I also need to build out the people that are actually what you would call your customers, not just your looky loser, your observers. You got to have people that are actually interested in what you do. And Twitter and Facebook are probably the number one promotion platforms for freelance artists right now. As sad as that is to say, because there are really good professional looking resources out there for freelance artists like artstation.com. I have an artstation profile that will literally do prints for me, but nobody visits artstation. It's a very limited customer base and mostly artists themselves who aren't going to go pay for somebody else to do the art. Yeah. The idea would be get YouTube, Twitter, Facebook promoted up, double down on the, the quality that I'm putting out there. And then promote some of the the things that I've got going on. On my link tree, I've got Fiverr is a good one right now because it's it's easy for people to go out there and say, okay, I want that thing digitally delivered. It'll take you 30 minutes to draw it. I'll pay you five bucks for it. Cool. (laughs) Whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a little bit exaggerated. It's 20 bucks for a a 30 minute drawing, but yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> and there's leveraging things that are already in existence. A lot of people do, from a marketer's standpoint, a lot of people jump out and the first thing they do is they want to go out and run out and create a website and they don't have any other online presence. And my question to them is, where is the traffic going to come from? Uh, especially if you're in a creator space. If you're doing a straight up service business, it's a little bit easier. Or if you're doing a retail business, it's a little bit easier. But if you're just a creator building the website out, and I've learned this the hard way, building the website out doesn't mean anything until you start driving traffic to it. And so it sounds like you have your traffic sources up and you have a plan for it. The, um, the old adage, if you build it, they will come. Not true. <laughs> it's, in fact, it's almost the opposite. Right. Um, if you build something that nobody wants to look at, they will avoid it actively. <laughs> if you build it, they will avoid it actively. Might be right. <laughs> and. So moving forward, I know in this vein, one of the artists that we bought a commission off of recently from a little girl, my wife and I were watching Lovecraft Country on HBO and the artist that would, that would draw the comic books that they would, that one of the characters drew, she's drawn a lot of stuff with the characters and stuff like that. And we ended up buying something from her just based on the stuff we've seen her working on the show. And it was crazy because she was posting it on Twitter and my wife just saw it and was like, I must have that. And then, and she, you know, she's posting on Twitter, went to the, follow the Twitter link to her website and were able to order some prints from her. And so there is a good, what I'm saying is once you get this traffic, once you get this traffic flowing, there's a good path for it that's possible for you based on your visibility and, and your fans that follow you. It's really cool. That's really cool. Moving on here, because I know we're running out of time. I know you got uh, some other commitments that we got to move on to. Where can they um, find you? <laughs> so my handle for art is Lax Detail, L-A-X-D-E-T-A-I-L. So you can find twitter.com slash laxdetail, twitch.tv slash laxdetail, instagram.com slash laxdetail and so on and so forth. You can find that on Fiverr if you're interested in commissioning me. And I'll give you my link tree after this is over so people can click on that if they want to see the show notes or anything like that. Yeah, that's what, and that's what I was going to go to. We're going to be putting the link tree in the show notes. Um, guys, if you're listening to this, please go check out Chris's link tree. And if you see something you like or you, you want to ask a question about commission, reach out to him so that we can get some business driving to him to really support this new, the, the new adventure with digital art. Anything else we want to add regarding your art business? Because we're going to jump gotcha. into our lightning round. Right I, I just say, I, it, if you need a style, if you need something, I can pretty much accommodate it, and I can take the time necessary to make it happen. And I won't do less than I'm happy. I won't give you less than I'm happy with. And I have, I hold myself to a high standard. So. Right. That's good. And a lot of times people will get into the people will just slop something out there that they're not really satisfied with. And so it's good to have an assurance from the creator. Hey, I won't give you anything. I'm not. Yeah. 100% if I wouldn't put it up on with. my website as so, something I'm proud of, I won't hand it to you. I just won't. All right. So guys, the the link tree will be in the show notes. Please go out and support Chris and what he does and check him out on Twitch. And we'll have that in the link tree as well. All right. So lightning round and since this is my first interview we're rolling this out we're gonna try it and see how you guys respond to it i am so, ready are Let's you go. ready chris all right i'm not setting a timer yet because i don't know how long this is gonna take first who are you and uh, what do you i do? am an 
a virtuoso, a bit of a polymath in some ways. I learn things quickly. I'll do anything that I find fun. And when it stops being fun, I stop doing it. I'm a digital artist. I'm an insurance agent. I okay. like answering weird questions and I can't sleep if a question is bothering me. So don't ask me anything after 10 p.m. <laughs> and I love your motto, I do the weird stuff. That's always... <laughs> That's probably one of the most, that's one of the best describers that, or descriptors of services that I've that <laughs> To I've be heard. clear on that All one, right. I feel like it needs some clarity. Let's... I do the weird stuff refers to insurance. I like weird <laughs> questions and different kinds of insurance policies. If you think you got something unique, I will find you an answer. I do the weird stuff. <laughs> All right. You probably could apply that to art too. That would be interesting. I, do some I draw the weird stuff. <laughs> Not too weird. <laughs> Just a little weird. Um. What's your favorite quote? Uh, making my way through a book called The The Road Less Stupid, I think is what it's called. And uh, he t tells a story about Warren Buffett golfing in there. And he says, and uh, Bill Gates says, if you can hit a hole in one, I'll bet you 20 bucks you can't hit a hole in one right now. And Warren Buffett says, what, what odds will you give me? He says, a thousand to one. And he says, no deal. Bad odds. A thousand to one? That's bad odds. He says, well, yeah, if I hit 10,000 golf balls, I might make one in. But a thousand? I'm not that good a golfer. No deal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The Road Less Stupid, that sounds like in the, the I, there's a writer, author I read, Dave McRaney, who does, it's a cognitive, it's a series of cognitive science ones, and it's You Are Not So Smart, and he has a couple of books in that lane. You're Not So Smart and Be Less Dumb. And so it's about cognitive science. He has a podcast that's fantastic yeah, to listen stupid to. Is by, I think it's um, Keith, uh, Keith Cunningham, I think is the name of the author. Yeah. Okay. So you killed two birds with one stone. What book are you currently reading? And what was the last book you read? And uh, so the clearly. book I'm currently reading is The Road Less Stupid. The last book I, I can remember reading, because I do that fairly frequently, but the last one I can recall a name of is and of course i just forgot the name it's shoot lightning round is going really right now that's all right if you could summarize it poorly yeah, that would neuromancer is the name of the book it's a, a summarizing it poorly the main character hacks the internet gets nearly killed for it they take away his ability to hack the internet so he gets it back and then uses the internet to kill all the people that he doesn't like and the internet suddenly has a consciousness of its own. <laughs> All right. So what is your current hustle? We current mentioned hustle, that. Hustle, I'm a full-time insurance agent. So I do insurance as my main hustle. Side hustle is currently digital art. And basically, if you think that I could be useful to you and you're willing to pay me to do it, that's my hustle today. So. All right. What is your big question about marketing your products um, or services? So the big question is, I funneling my customers to a useful place or am I taking all my tributaries and losing my customers to the delta of the internet? And that leads to the side question of what am I missing? What thing am I leaving on the table? What am I not thinking about? What should I be seeing? So the big question is, how can I turn my tributaries into a canyon and drive my customers into the into the funnel that I want them to be in? And am I doing that properly? Real quick, Russell Brunson talks about traffic that you rent, traffic that you borrow, and traffic that you own. 
If you ever get a chance, check out his Expert Secrets books. They call them the Secrets Trilogy. He talks about the importance of owning your own traffic. And I think that goes into what we're talking about, where if you're on Facebook and you have a following, you're borrowing that traffic. Facebook can shut down tomorrow and that traffic goes away. But if you have a mailing list and a website to drive them to, you own that traffic. So anytime you have something new, you can send it out to them. So, all right. Give the audience one life-changing piece one of life-changing advice. life-changing piece of advice. Pants can be worn more than once, but not in a row. <laughs> that one's good. Where can people find you or follow you? We're going to put the link tree out there, but just hit us with your ads and your addresses where we could, or uh, just platforms where we can find you. Just get a good you. overview, instagram.com slash laxdetail. Check that one out. You'll see a little bit of a smattering of what I do. Awesome. Awesome. So anything else you would like to add to um, the audience, Chris? I would say get online. If you're not, if your business isn't online, if it's not on every opportunity, it can be on online at some level, you are losing out on your ability to be found by customers who do want to find you. They genuinely want to. And if you are doing, doing your marketing properly, you should not have to be selling anything. All right. All right. Chris, I appreciate your time. Thanks for taking time out of your busy day. I know you got a ton of things going on, but I love the fact that you uh, came on and had this little conversation with me. The link is in the links to reach out to Chris are in the show notes, like, share, and subscribe and reach out to me. Thank you so much for having Um, me, Brian. I appreciate it. Chris, I will talk to you later and thank everybody for tuning in to Brian sells words. If it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. I will get to you guys next week. I'm really trying to get back onto my weekly schedule. That's all I have for today. Thanks, Chris. And I will talk to you guys later.